I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And welcome to a slightly belated instalment of Pilot Club. Slightly belated, had a but bit better of a, here than ever. Had a bit of a busy week, so just we're, yeah. we're rocking it forward to Sunday night. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we've ever recorded on a Sunday no, night. No, Sunday night feels like it's uh, more serious in some ways. Yeah, yeah. A bit more think pieces tonight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bit more highbrow. Pilot Club after dark. But also like a, you know, like kind of more muted shows too because normally when we're recording Pilot Club it, there's a pleasure at being at the end of the week mm, mm. the weekend is nigh mm. whereas here we're at the end of the weekend so we got some yeah. more more kind of depressive kind yeah, of shows yeah we're both working through the Sunday scaries right now yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> and, and on to scaries yeah let's go Sandman mm. Neil Gaiman Billy mm. you pumped? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay so The Sandman it's an American fantasy drama TV series based on a very very canonical uh, comic book uh-huh. Of the same name, it's written by Neil Gaiman and published by DC. So, mm. so you can see how this this lies at the intersection of a lot of different fandoms, and the uh, the fan base for this was is a really rabid fan base. So, we don't want to we want to be really careful about not alienating the Billy. Yeah, we don't we don't want to get we don't want to get cancelled by Sandman stands <laughs> or yeah Neil Gaiman stands yep. or DC Comics stands. Exactly. It's a it's a really it's, it's a, I'm not going to say toxic brew, but it's a really intense brew. <laughs> um, so efforts um, to adapt this this comic book mm. series have been you know very long duration. They actually began in 1991, uh, but it's been in development hell since, and it's really not since 2013 where David S. Goy, who's the writer of the the Dark Knight movies, uh, pitched an adaptation to Warner Brothers. Now, this was originally to, to star uh, Gordon Joseph Levitt, oh, who wow. was also going to direct. But like Joseph, I, Joseph Gordon Levitt. What did I say? Gordon Joseph Levitt. <laughs> He's not I a Gordon. I, cap- I captured the spirit. He's I not a Gordon. Spirit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was true to the spirit of the yeah. name. Um, so uh, he actually exited over creative differences. Mm. And again, it went from being a film to a TV series. Mm. And it was only in uh, June 2019 when Netflix uh, agreed to to pick this up, and um, yeah, so it, it has now come from from you might even describe this as the, the comic book dream team mm. of you know Neil Gaiman, a very acclaimed comic book writer, obviously DC Comics, very seminal, and David S. Goya, who has real uh, you know fan cojones and uh, mm. you know bona fides as a result <laughs> as a result of <laughs> as a result of his. Uh, Adapting, uh, you know, the Dark Knight series. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're, 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 got, we're good dealing Spanish, with some, good Spanish recall there. <laughs> we're dealing with some real comic book royalty here. Yep. Um, so, onto the actual series itself, mm. The Sandman. Mm. Take yes. it, take us away. Well, it is rather it is a rather complicated premise, and it took me took me a while to uh, get the into the swing of things, and if I, you will. I have to confess that I didn't understand much, if not all, <laughs> of what was happening in the pilot. Well, there's definitely an element there. This is playing to the fanboys. Mm. And, and the average punter. Yeah, and fangirls. And fangirls, yes. Yep. Fangirls, yes. Uh, fan people. Fan people. Uh, so the premise, if as I understand it, is that there are seven endless mythical creatures um, who control the workings of time and the universe. See, that, that just went straight over my head. <laughs> I, I, had no sense of, I had no sense of the endless. <laughs> this, was, this is revealed to us. Toward two thirds okay. of the way through the pilot, probably the, the moment where you were taking the bathroom break. Okay, did you get this from the pilot or from a quick, a sneaky Wikipedia read afterwards? Because <laughs> no, no, you're checking Wikipedia was, right now. It yeah. was it was a it was a uh, tour through the okay. through the uh, museum. Okay. Of uh, I of just dream. I just wonder if you picked this up retrospectively. No, after, no, it was, it was very clearly foregrounded. Okay. okay. And you know the obvious <laughs> expository moments in this in this okay. series. Right. Uh, I so. just I just I I did, I did not yeah I didn't see it. <laughs> 
Um, so the, the main character here is Dream. Mm. Now, he's a personification of dreams, as you might be able to, to tell. And he's he's captured and snatched. So he was a Sandman. He's a Sandman. Okay, okay, Dream. okay. Well, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. He's okay. our titular Sandman. Now we're cooking. Okay. Okay. So he, he inhabits uh, some sort of parallel universe of the dreams and nightmares. Yep. And he's happy doing his own thing. And the only time he has any sway in our in our world, in the real world, mm. is when people are unconscious. Yep. So through an occult ritual, he is snatched and stolen from his world and transplanted and imprisoned mm. in our real world. Mm-hmm. Did you get this? I did. I, okay. I, I did get that. I didn't... Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because I, mean, I, I did get that, but just plot-wise, it seems strange at like just a one-off ritual could do something so fundamental as imprison the Sandman. But mm. maybe that's explained. Yeah, like it seemed disproportionate, but maybe that's explained mm. more. Or yeah. Well, the guy who was running this occult ritual was, you know, uh, Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones. Charles so I Dance. believe he. I believe he can do anything. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> him. He just him showing up just yep. indicated he had, he had immense authority and yep. power. Yep. Sure. So I, I bought in. I bought in. So he's captured in this occult ritual mm-hmm. and imprisoned, naked. In this, uh, in this kind of you know, glass terrarium um, for 106 years. Mm. So a lot of this pilot actually takes place you know, in different historical epochs mm. as we see what, what, what chaos the capturing of this, uh, this Sandman has wrought on the real world, including the phenomenon of the sleeping sickness, which at first I thought was maybe an, an allegory for the Spanish flu. Mm. But then it seems to occur in World War II. Mm. Um, it, the capturing of the Sandman also appears to be a causative factor of the, uh, mm. the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And I guess we must take it, the Cold War. And, uh, and it's, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I mean, it, it's, it's a really disorienting... Um, I, th- it's, I think it's interesting this week because we've got a couple of different types of pilots or pilots that are trying to do something a bit different. And this is almost more like a prologue than a pilot, isn't mm, it? Like, it I is. wondered whether it is so compressed and so convoluted in some ways, mm. maybe the series that follows is a bit more straightforward. Or, at least, or, or I wonder, is, is it going to be like a kind of almost like a procedural where episode by episode, the Sandman tries to bring... like Because... Is the issue that because he's been entrapped, there's been no regulation of the sleeping and waking worlds. So people yes. haven't been able to sleep properly, but also dreams and nightmares have escaped into the waking world. Yeah, that's right. So that's I wonder right. if episode by episode, there's going to be a bit more of a you know, a, a less chaotic rhythm where each in each episode he's trying to regulate or fix that threshold between sleeping and waking in, in some mm, way. Mm, yeah, it's clearly. Like, it's, it's like yeah. a prologue, isn't it? Yeah, more the than world a of dreams and nightmares no longer sticking to their lane. Yep. And these two worlds have collapsed mm. and the, the interface between the two appears to be quite porous. Mm. And I take it we'll probably meet the other six endless. Mm. So that so dream is one of the endless. Dream is one of the endless. And are they all involved in reg- in policing sleep and waking? No, life? no, okay. no, no. They're okay. like the Eternals. Okay. It's, it feels like it's some sort of Marvel's Eternals uh, okay. adjacent okay. quality. Um, but he's he's imprisoned for 106 years, and then he escapes mm. at the end. So in 2022. So by the end of this pilot, we're now in the present, and he's he's escaped, and I think mm. he's probably trying to bring um, some sort of order. Back was, to the real world. That was something I thought did work well that, and was quite bold. Like the rhythm of having a pilot that takes place, yeah, like what, over a 160-year span? Mm. I mean, for two reasons. Like it was interesting that, you know, although time progresses very rapidly, there's no discernible increase or there's no discernible change in technology. 
Mm. So, I mean, there's a little bit, but it's like the past already feels futuristic and the present already feels historical. Mm. So, like, it's, mm. it, it's, got, it's got that real, like, mm. I guess, see, steampunk or cyberpunk mm. sense of time. Or fantasy. Or fantasy sense of time. Mm. But especially that, that type of fantasy which is about taking historical periods and dissociating them from the kind of technological cues you'd yeah. expect. Yeah. And it's funny, like something I, I wondered a lot in the wake of the pandemic and, you know, and the wake of Black Lives Matter, like I wondered if A, we were going to see more history curricula that were focused on race, but also more history curricula that were focused on biology mm. and like the role of pandemics and the role of, you know, like physiology and biology in shaping mm. human history. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting example of like, you know, how would history look if instead of measuring it around wars or political regimes, we measured it around sleep? Yeah. So it's kind of a really alternative version of history that I, I thought was, was interesting and gave the pilot an interesting kind of rhythm, mm, mm. even if I couldn't actually follow the bare, the bare basics of the plot itself. <laughs> the ambience... When, uh, I, when I said endless, your eyes glazed over. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. You're like a goldfish I for just, some of these I pilots. Just, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Seven let's, second memory. Let's not, let's not generalise. <laughs> Let's not generalise, but um, <laughs> yeah. So a lot of this is alternate history. Now I'm I'm be surprised if the this the rest of this series is actually set in 2022, given they they seem like they've spent so much money on on the props and the costuming mm. and the uh, the sets and for, the, for, the, for the, all these historical epochs. But and yet, unless they just rated on another BBC, yeah, yeah, you know, the backlot, <laughs> backlot, yeah. But and yet, all all of them feel similar too. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like it, it's funny. Like it was a funny pilot because. I mean, it's interesting. Like, not ha ha funny. Not ha ha funny. No, um, <laughs> laughs are rather scarce. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the issue with it. Almost that—that that is almost the issue with it too. Like, it's interesting. Like, Neil Gaiman wrote the books, right? Mm. But from what I understand, the comics. comics yep. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, he wrote the comics, but from what I understand, there's a there's a whole kind of swathe of different illustrators. So although the books have this consistent plot. They're very diverse in terms of how they look visually. Right. And it's like there's several generations mm. of illustrators. Mm. Do they all look terrible? <laughs> I don't I think they're pretty I don't okay, know. Okay. I don't know. Uh, the fantasy world here I don't think is the most convincing. But but I but I wonder if the reason for that is is that there's a kind of disconnect here, right? So you have this comic book franchise where there's just like I feel like you're in a comic mood tonight. Um you know, you have this comic book franchise where there's all these different artists who contribute to it, and yet Netflix itself has such a homogenous style. Yes. So this feels definitely from the Netflix. Yeah. You know, from the producers who who brought you a hundred hundred and one other you yeah. know really really cut rate you know science fiction slash fantasy y, series. Y A cyberpunk yeah. series. So that's something I wondered. Like for a series, it seems to be acclaimed for being so heterogeneous in terms of its visual style. You know, just mm. radically different illustrators, different generations of illustrators. Mm. Seeing that translated into the kind of uniformity of Netflix mm. was quite dissonant. And there were times where it was almost like the hustle and bustle of it and the convolution of it and the density of it was like Netflix trying to break its own homogeneity. Yeah. So every time we jump forward in time, there's this flurry and there's this chaotic reconfiguration of you know the sets and the the historical period and the you know to some extent the characters. But nothing really changes either. And it's, it's all got that, that kind of... You know, there's some things about the Netflix house style I like, but what I'm not so into is this very steely palette. Yeah. Like everything looks CGI. Yeah, everything looks right. grim. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the Netflix digital murk. Yeah, it is, and it's 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 not 
atmospheric in the same way as say a David Fincher digital Merc. It's just it just looks it makes everything look artificial, mm. even the stuff that's actually shot in real space and time. Mm. So that, well, you can't even tell what's shot in real space well, and time. Well, exactly. Yeah, and it, it has a really leveling effect. It's almost like they they've they've reduced real sets to the to the uh, status and quality of CGI to make them less yeah. more, less you know um, discernible. And it creates a very grim, angsty kind of tone that mm. I, I especially associate with Netflix kind of YA mm. cyberpunk production. So that was something I felt like just this kind of disconnect where you have this this series, this comic book series that you know. I, mean, I don't know much about it, but from all you know, report is is so. Sure, sure don't. <laughs> well, I think I, I knew I knew more than you about the illustrators. Let's, let's say that. Um, but you know, you have this comic book series that is so, by reports, heterogeneous visually. But a did Netflix... you get sleeping sickness during this part? <laughs> but a, but a, but a, a Netflix style that's so homogenous. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so you have yeah. like you like you know you're trying to adapt something that's visually flamboyant and diverse but through a streaming platform that's quite yeah. like standardised. Yeah. So I, and I, yeah. I thought that explained the rhythm where like it was just continually trying to kind of jazz itself up, mm. continually trying to reinvent itself. Mm. But it just, it ended up looking the same each time. Yeah. There's almost a sense with the Netflix house style where, you know, that, that indefinite, uh, you know, feed, the feed just keeps continuing, continuing, like, you know, one, one program, you know, indiscernibly blurs into another. Mm. And this, this feels like just... <laughs> A continuation of some of those other Netflix YA series we've seen. Well, that's what I mean. Like that's what I mean. And like, I did look up some of the images from different generations of the comic, and like, it looks genuinely scary mm. and genuinely other. Whereas here, I felt like the whole thing had this kind of British weirdness to it, mm. like this very twee British weirdness. Mm. That and it, look, and maybe it just can't be as dark or as violent as the comic, mm. but. Still, you had this kind of British weirdness, and I think it reminded me of that. What was that Joss Whedon show we watched set in the nineteenth oh, yes, century? Yes, I was thinking that was yeah. one of the worst shows we've seen the, on the podcast. Yeah. I think but it, it <laughs> this was, was better than that. This was better than that, but it, it was the same, you know, yeah. same wheelhouse. Yeah. Like yeah. it was, and just this kind of pervasive weirdness. I thought really cut against suspense, mm. cut against anything genuinely uncanny, but also mm. cut against genuine genuine terror. Mm. Even though the premise, like the idea. You know, if anyone's had insomnia or has had difficulty sleeping, you know that the the premise of that complete lack of regulation of the sleeping and waking world is a kind of terrifying one. Mm. But visually, it didn't live up to it. So I just no, no. Yeah. I know what you mean. And if it if the comic book is is very scary and you know full of these really dark images of mm. terror mm. and you know the impending. Horror of mm. going to sleep—that's completely absent from here. Yeah. This is this is one of those adaptations that's neither fish nor fowl. I mean, a good a good analogy would be like imagine, say, if Netflix was adapting the Nightmare on Elm Street films into a series. Like, in the same way that here they've got to accommodate a whole lot of different visual styles in the comic books of mm. Sandman. Like, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise has a lot of different beats and mm. registers. And if you were truly to adapt it as a series, you'd want to pull on as many of those as possible. Yeah. It's like if they did that, but they just went for the most standardised option possible. Yeah. But almost a kind of like false consciousness where there's this continual effort to kind of break. It's like watching Netflix trying to escape its own yeah. homogeneity, trying to escape its own flatness. Yeah. And it produces a lot of excess energy yeah. and a lot of frenetic kind of mise-en-scene. But it, d it never actually breaks the mould. It just makes the mould feel more constrictive. Yeah, I agree. I so, agree. I agree. Yeah, there's, it was a weird watch. There was something a bit leaden 
yeah. about this well, pilot. And visually. Yeah. I mean, that, that metallic grim palette, yeah. it looks like Visually, plot-wise. The other quibble I have with a lot of these um, fantasy slash sci-fi series is that we're trafficking more in 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 types than characters mm. or concepts over characters. Mm. None of the characters here are fully fleshed out. And again, in a graphic novel, that can work really well. Like it's, I felt almost the pacing and the characterization might have worked really well in a graphic novel where you you know you, it's not realistic in the same way and it's larger than life mm. and it's almost archetypal like mm. you know this the batman of dark knight is obviously drawn from the comics but is is very different on the big screen mm. i feel like this hadn't quite made that translation i mean i wonder whether almost the most honest way to adapt or the most effective way to adapt a comic book like this is almost as an anthology series mm. where each episode, I mean, it may be linear, so it's not exactly an anthology series, but each episode is directed by a different director mm. and has a completely different visual palette. Like something like that seems truer to the original comic book series and just this crushing leaden, <laughs> you know, like it's like, you know, metallic dim. It's almost like, it's almost like they make it dim because they don't back themselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. like if you could see well, it all. it's a cost-saving measure, so they don't need to really fill out the, the yeah. three-dimensionality of the background. It's a, and they can conceal the the artifice working it's, in, in it's the a low visual It's sphere. a low-confidence low confidence yeah. play, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. I just, it was funny because, as we said, the premise is really good. Even though I didn't get the endless, <laughs> I didn't at all understand the endless. I mean, but something I thought, like moments that I thought were terrifying, like the way the Sandman is in prison, like that device is in, like it's kind of like a spaceship, but also mm. kind of like an astrolabe or like mm. something from medieval times. So all mm. the iconography around that, mm. like that pulled like science fiction and British history together in a way that I thought was genuinely unsettling. So mm. whenever the action turned around the Sandman's prison, mm. that that was effective. Yeah. But just a lot of the other historical stuff around, yeah, like in the same way that the more it tried to escape its own flatness, the more it felt trapped, that the more it tried to differentiate each period, the more Yeah. The more flat flat and affectless it yeah, came and, off. And the more it all felt like it was set in one time, which was good in some ways for that cyberpunk style, but in other ways I just didn't think worked. So it's it's interesting. I, I wonder if my final feeling about it is it's it's kinda of hard to judge too much from this anyway because it is more like a prologue i'm judging you're judging yeah, yeah maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that, yeah maybe judgment isn't it? yeah well after saying we wouldn't alienate the the gaming stands yep. or the dc stands they're going to come after us now it's going to be uh, pitchforks and yeah, flaming yeah. torches so Although brace I guess, yourself i guess what we're saying is we we wish it was better we wish it yes. was truer yes truer to the vision truer to game and vision <laughs> um but yeah strange like a strange a strange kind of it Netflix dead end, yeah. like an example of Netflix trying to do something original, but just being, despite having all the resources and all the money and all the artists it needs at its disposal, mm. just settling for the safest option, mm. I felt. Mm. So look, I'm, I'm, I'm an out. Yeah, yeah. This Sandman's uh, produced a nightmare. <sighs> okay, so on to our second show this week, mm. um, Candy. This, yeah. this, is, this was a real sleeper hit for me I, I didn't know much about this but i think it's turned into one of my favorite pilots that we've watched um it's based on the case of candy montgomery and betty gore which I, I'd, I'd never heard of before i'm very surprised by that given how deep that rabbit hole deep that, true, that crime true crime rabbit hole yeah yeah um so it's it's about an incident that took place in 1980 in texas um where a pair of housewives who were friends candy montgomery and betty gore had an encounter 
in Betty Gore's house. And mm. uh, Candy Montgomery's story, Candy's story was that Betty Gore came at her with a uh, with an axe, and mm. that she responded by taking the axe from her and killing her. So she killed her in self defence. Right. And Candy was actually acquitted of the crime because oh. no one could prove exactly what had happened in the house. Oh. And you know, the backstory she fell on the axe ten times. Yeah. Oh no 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 no. I mean they, they Candy said I did I did strike her with oh, the axe. Oh okay. But she said it was in self defence. She struck her forty one times. So. <laughs> It's a, it's, so 41 it, times in self-defense. 41 times. In, wow. so, so she said, so um, Candy had been having an affair with Betty's husband oh. and Betty found out about it. Candy comes over. Um, Betty comes over with the axe and Candy manages to wrestle the axe back from her and strikes her 41 times with it. Wow. Did it, you really read into this case after watching yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, I got really interested in oh, it. And okay. um, Well, just, just to kind of contextualise what's oh. happening in the pilot. Okay. And... Um, once for self-defence, 40 times for good measure. Well, she said she panicked, but also she wasn't harmed. Like, there were no axe wounds on her body. Mm. But I think the issue was that there was no way to disprove the story because there were no witnesses mm. and, you know, the, no one saw what happened. So the pilot that deals with this is kind of extraordinary. Um, Jessica Beale plays Candy and Melanie Linsky plays Betty. And, you know, we've talked quite a bit in the podcast about you know, adapting horror to television, about adapting psychological suspense to television. I thought this was like a master masterpiece in adapting suburban horror to television. So it's an... Ex- I mean, the, the structure is, I think, extraordinary, like so simple and yet so effective. We start with uh, Candy and Betty going about their mornings. Mm. Um, Betty's husband goes off to a, mm. for a business trip. I almost thought this pilot was shot in real time. Yeah. At it's times got, it conveys it's that. It's got an absolute real-time feel. Um, and Candy's husband goes to work. Candy goes about her morning. Um, she goes over to Betty's house. Something happens. She comes out with blood in her face. Um, for the rest of the pilot, she just goes about her day as normal, mm. but with this looming sense of dread and this looming sense of uncanny that comes from our inability to know exactly what's happened in that house. Mm. And finally, at the end of the day... Um, Betty's husband calls Candy several times. He calls neighbours. And finally, the body is discovered and the pilot ends there. So, I mean, I thought this was almost like if, if, if Hitchcock made a 50-minute film, I thought it, it would feel something like this. Like, you know, there's, there's that extraordinary Hitchcockian sense of ellipsis. So you know how often in a, in a Hitchcock film, the suspense will come from just one object or one space that doesn't quite fit with the rest of the mise-en-scene. So you know, carrying the glass up the stairs in suspicion or, say, in Rope, where you have a dinner party that's unfolding around uh, a box that contains a dead body. Mm. All that happens in this pilot is we see a suburban woman go about her normal daily routine, but with our additional knowledge that something violent has happened in a house that she visits. It mm. reminded me, I think... Or it do was, we even have that knowledge? Well, she has blood in her face. Yeah, yeah so we don't even have that knowledge. At the beginning. But, but no, uh, yeah, remember she comes out of the house, she has blood in her mm. face, like something has happened, but we don't As know. the pilot opens, for example, there's, not, there's no framing device. No, there's not, no. Suggesting there's a murder here. So we, so we, yeah, exactly. So all we know is that something intense has happened. And that gives the day an extraordinary kind of uncanniness. And mm. uncanny, like, you know, the... Freudian idea of uncanny, it comes from the idea unhomely. And Mm. it's when something that should be homely suddenly isn't. I mean, that's literally the case here Mm. where you have this, you know, this suburban day that just is gradually unsettled by our our feeling something has gone wrong. Mm. And this Hitchcockian ellipsis, I guess, that constellates especially around 
um, Betty's house. So mm. we continually cut back to the house mm. and the house becomes a kind of repository of this gaze. Mm. It becomes endowed with this gaze or this presence that's impossible to read. But so in turn does every other empty space in the film, in the mm. in the pilot. So we move we, we move through just like this prototype of suburban daily life. We see church, we see the mall, we see, you know, the downtown area, we see the school, we just go through every suburban space. But because the meaning of that one house is ambiguous. Every other empty space or every other vacant space brings with the same intensity. Mm, and mm. It, and it, even the characters' dialogue, yeah. when you when you strip out the actual violent incident and mm. you repress it, there's there's so much uh, late on. The, uh, the dialogue becomes so laden with innuendo. Well, it feels like the dialogue is also coalescing around an unnameable object or an unspeakable fact, which I think is must be Candy's affair with Betty's husband. Mm, mm. Candy, for example, tells this, well, you might even say quasi-parable, mm. about um, you know, a tree that is, that is chopped down and, and says, oh, you know... Um, you know, woe is me, and then it becomes a cross. Mm. So already there's a kind of an innuendo, a kind of double meaning mm. of all the dialogue here. Everything is such a pregnancy yeah. to this, uh, the plotting and the, all this, the speech between the characters because, you know, any sort of hint of overt violence is stripped out mm. of this pilot. I, I Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of that pregnancy, I mean, I think this series has, this, has such an incredible sense of duration. Mm. Like... At a time when so many pilots are either like just numbingly slow, like defending Jacob, or really choppy and frenetic, this is just incredible classical suspense. I mean, it, it reminded me a little bit of when I first watched Dial M for Murder. Like mm. it's it's when I watched first watched Dial M for Murder, I was aware of all these empty spaces mm. that didn't really because I watch it in two D. It's mm. it's it's meant as a three D film, but I initially watch it in three D. Sorry, I initially watch it in two D. And I was just aware in the 2D version. I think I watched it before I even knew it was a 3D film. Mm. Like I just got it out on VHS knowing nothing about mm. it being used to experiment with 3D technology. And I was aware watching it of all these kind of empty spaces that suggested a kind of a different dimension that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And this is like that. Like there's all these... It reminds me too, I think it was Krakow. It's like there's three types of cinematic horror. Like there's like cinematographic horror, you know, playing with the lens theatrical horror you know prosthetics objects and then there's what he called pure cinematic horror and that's when you have a normal suburban room and you, someone tells you the body concealed behind a couch mm. like this is that kind of horror and the hitchcockian stuff m makes sense to me because it feels like the series is also kind of historicizing her suburban horror as a genre so it's strange like all the suburban scenes are very 80s mm. and yet like the downtown scenes seem to be stuck in a kind of mid-century modern style like as a travel agent that looks straight out of north by northwest you know for example and it's almost like the series is saying like this moment 1980 is the moment at which suburban melodrama becomes suburban horror mm. and the way it kind of maps that is to kind of present 1980 as a shift from you know the classical suburban era of like you know eisenhower and suburban dream to like a new wave of later suburbanites or later directors reflecting upon 50 suburbia from the perspective of the 80s so this mm. this mm. really reminded me of blue velvet mm. at times like that's like bucolic yet psychotic suburbia mm. really reminded me of heavenly creatures like melanie linsky as dowdy in the same way that you know peter jackson film which is also about you know 
pathologizing 50s suburbia in mm. um, New Zealand. And it reminded me a lot of just Tim Burton, like Edward Scissorhands as mm. well, just that, that, that veneer of suburbia that's so denatured. So, yeah, it, it was almost like it presents this murder and this moment as a point at which we start to tip from suburban melodrama to suburban horror, but also at the point at which we start to tip from this classical experience of suburbia to this like 80s and 90s revisionist. Mm, that's and, right, and, yeah. And the sense that suburbia is somewhat you know, hedged by, by race, gender, mm. class, and that sense of you know, white flight and uh, the gated communities and, and just and prefigures in, all that. Even in a comic mode too, like you know, one of the big suburban horror parodies of the 90s is So I Married an Ex-Murderer. Mm. I wondered if that was based on this case. Like it's, you know, Mike Myers, um, you know, he, he marries a woman who turns out to be an ex-murderer. I just wondered if that was part of the inspiration mm. for that film. And mm. it is suburban horror. Like the title of the episode is Friday the 13th. Mm. Um, just before she's killed, Melanie Linsky is reading a review of The Shining. Mm. Like it's almost like you know, that The Shining takes that suburban angst and reimagines it in a gothic landscape. Now it's almost here like the overlookers return to suburbia. Mm. Mm. Um, but also it is real horror. Like she kills it yeah. with an axe. Yeah. Like it's not just like yeah. an axe. Like it's, it's very brutal. So... Mm. I just mm. thought it was a fascinating vision mm. of, yes. and the There's o- an incredible climax as well when, they, incredible, when yeah. they're exploring the house and that's like something out of Halloween, all those shots across, those long shots from across the street, seeing the different lighting and then looking for the, the different points of ingress into the house. Yeah, and, and there's a moment when the body's found and the phone rings and there's this kind of moment there where it's almost like it we jump forward to scream. Like mm. it's almost like we see distantly... Mm that completely revisionist suburban mm. like horror mm. and vision. But also the opening acts, I think, are kind of classic suburban melodrama. So a lot of before she's killed, a lot of the opening stuff is about how the Melanie Linsky character is positioned in her house. So mm. nearly always it's lit artificially. Mm. Like It's like Fifty Shades of Brown. Like all the interiors are brown. All the light is like this lurid yellow light. You see almost no natural light. There's hardly ever windows in the mise-en-scene, like hardly ever, you know, see any point of egress outside. She's nearly always alone in the middle of the frame, either kind of rocking in some fetal position or kind of contorted in some way. And it's kind of funny, like, when we move outside and look at the house, like on the one hand, all that yellow light makes you have to almost squint to Mm. see what's happening outside. But even then outside, you've got that same luminous gloom as well it's Mm. like even when you're outside you feel trapped in the house so it just kind of captures that agoraphobia that's so much a part of like douglas sirk and classical suburban Mm. melodrama Mm. but then with the murder it shifts into a kind of horror register Mm. a horror palette it was like i loved it i thought it was like a tone poem Mm. to suburbia Mm. a tone poem to suburbia at that cusp between you know classical and revisionist melodrama and horror somebody Mm. who like there's nothing yeah. I love so much as suburbia in film yeah, and television. Yeah, I thought yeah. this was a masterpiece it, of the form. It definitely reminded yeah. me of uh, an independent film, like a high-quality independent film, which really took a lot yes. of time to establish its aesthetic, its characters, and just the minutiae of their, mm. their daily routines. Yes. There was a real sense of care, and that was really borne out in the sense of temporality in this Absolutely. It, it really did feel like... I mean, it takes place just over the course of a day... Uh, which is slightly compressed, but it, it does have that sense of you know, authenticity. Duration. Living, yeah, living in, in real time here. And it made you realise, didn't it, how that kind of suburban horror 
and that kind of psychopathology could emerge from suburban life. I mean, there is there's so much blank space mm. and time, like so much of it, because often the way I kind of, you know, we've said this before, like you know the way I think of how the '90s are different to now is you know if you think of the '90s, I would say like think of sitting in a blank room, an empty room, and that's it. Yeah. You haven't got digital technology. You haven't got any other interfaces. Mm. And that, that is so... I, I always think of going to my grandparents' house in Griffith, you know, when I was in high school. And they live in a classic suburban house in Griffith. You know, I love my grandparents, love seeing them. But the sense of time was so uncanny. It was just mm. a lot of very blank time. Mm, oppressive. Yeah, and just, just strange. Like all this... And I remember whenever we'd go there with my family, I'd get... You know, I was a bit of an anxious kid, but I get more anxious about, did I hear a noise outside? Is yeah. the door locked? Just being so aware of that, that empty blank space and yeah. time as a source of terror. Mm. And this reminded me of that. Like it's, it's almost like the crime emerges naturally in those blind spots mm. and those dead zones in her mm. suburban routine. Mm. And it, the way it captures that and just that live time of suburbia and just, yeah, like the way it goes through every single kind of... Um, you know, just every single archetype of what you do in a suburban day mm. was incredible. So it was like, I, I just thought it was, I mean, my only concern about it was, is this, is this going to be like Sandman, that it's a prologue? But I'm, I'm heart, I haven't watched any more yet, but I'm heartened by the fact that the series is only five episodes. So yeah. I think they, they can't be too a, a much. Of it must, a lot of it must be surely the trial process. Yeah, right? and I, to give it to give credit where it's due, like this is a pilot that made me absolutely fascinated in the backstory. Mm. Like, you know, sometimes you have you know, a staple of true crime, right? True crime writing, um, you know, from Truman Capote to Anne Rule is that you start with an extraordinary evocation of the build-up and crime itself. So like, mm. you know, the famous opening part of In Cold Blood, the last to see them alive. Mm. That incredible, that's the prototype for true crime. You start with an incredible, you know, depiction of the crime itself and then you jump back to exposition which can sometimes be very anticlimactic mm. but this is one show i think has really earned the right of that exposition just yeah. because i'm it's so fascinating and elliptical what happens in the pilot yeah, yeah. even your brief uh, recount of the actual crime itself is not at all transparent based on that pilot i i, no. I knew i knew almost nothing about the the main characters the nature no. of the crime any of that and look you know you and so I said with only four episodes there's only so much exposition they can do anyway and the ending has to be ambiguous mm. i mean it's the kind of show you could watch and have no idea it was even true mm. like there, there's no and you know again in an era where there's so, so much of it like in true crime the focus is so much on the true mm. and is so much on topicality mm. to see a show that is so modest and reserved about the connections to the past mm. is really like it, mm. is it a pilot that almost holds everything back yes it, it's 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 comprised of everything it doesn't show you yes i thought this was in its own way like the one of the best films i've seen this yeah. year yeah the, the strategic withholding here mm. serves its aesthetic and its thematics mm. and yeah just conveys that that sense of uncanny which and, is which is permeates through this whole pilot and i thought work with the actresses too because just personally i i don't find jessica beale the most charismatic actress mm. but in this shows a kind of ellipsis or emptiness I thought she worked really well and I think Melanie Linsky has such a great intensity which was only in, intensified here mm. you know emphasized it by how abruptly her story ends yeah. I just thought it really it yeah. really got how to play to each actress yeah. actress's strengths what about Pablo Shriver Pablo Shriver yes yeah, so I thought he was really good in it too like I thought just I, I thought it was a kind of masterpiece of 
it's like the very hinge between melodrama mm. and horror. So mm. I'm I'm a hard in. Are you aware of the uh, the uh, the provenance of this show and the the creator? So uh, Nick Antosca is mm. one of the the creators, and he is responsible co-created um, Channel uh, Zero. Oh wow! And he was also the showrunner for the series The Act which I know was one of your personal favourites. Wow, okay, so those are two shows that absolutely nail not just horror, but the uncanny Mm. on television, Mm. that intensified Mm. normality. uncanny. Yeah, and that intensified normality. Yeah. Oh, that that makes absolute sense. Mm. Yeah, Mm. so I would say he's obviously some kind of television auteur then because each of these shows is so distinctive. I think that's right. We're getting a sense of what we... It's probably less about directors than it is about showrunners. Yeah. Showrunners, you know, mm. putting their particular imprimatur on, mm. on each series. And this is clearly bears the hallmarks of a Nick Antosca mm. series. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. The other co-creator actually was a was a writer for Mad Men too. Yeah, so right. So it's, it's a nice little, uh, you know, compilation well, of powers here. Well, remember, remember we said that one of our fantasies about Mad Men was it would just continue forever and reach the present. Yeah. And that Mad Men is always, you know just straining to take that 50 space into the present. Mm. So it makes sense that you'd have, you know, someone who worked on Mad Men would also have this vision of the exact quilting point between 50s and 80s, yeah. or between 50s and the present. Yeah. So, look, I, we could talk about this for ages, but I, I, I love it. This is one of my favourite pilots of the year. It took me completely by surprise. Mm. We, Yeah, I'm, I'm a hard in. Yeah, I'm an in too. I think this is really impressive. Mm. Well, mm. Billy... On to our next series. Mm. It's set in the 80s. It involves a cast of outsiders. Mm. It involves parallel universes. Mm. It involves other science fiction-inflected 1980s nostalgia hijinks. Uh. But it's not... It's not Stranger Things. It's not Stranger Things. No. It's not Stranger Things. It is Paper Girls. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's been framed as a rip-off of Stranger Things. But it's so obviously indebted to it. I think it just feels more like a kind of revisionist Stranger Things or, or part of a new burgeoning genre inspired by Stranger Things. Like, Well, it, this, this uh, series is based on a 2015 comic book series of the same name, mm. so I'm not sure whether that predates Stranger mm. Things and whether we can claim this is a direct influence, but mm. there are certainly so many you know, overlaps here that it must surely have some well, you know, I think debt at, to Stranger Things and its enormous popularity. As an, as an adaptation. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. even if the book predates Stranger Things, it, the adaptation feels yeah. very much in even, the way. Even, even the, you know, the mise-en-scene of the, you know, this group of outsiders riding their bikes mm. down a suburban street mm. around twilight, it's, it feels so, so, you know, proximate. To Stranger Things, and that's that, what I mean. Is that like, has Stranger Things kind of bred its own kind of subgenre of mm. like, you know, eighties, you know, eighties coming nostalgia of age. Pates, the nostalgia yeah. pieces about. Mm. You know, I suppose that the the movie It and the It yeah, series totally. felt like they were definitely uh, Stranger Things adjacent too. Well, I kind of wonder, like, in this day and age where so much interaction happens online, like, is there something that young people and kids find compelling about like the troop mm. in in physics? Like, mm. it's like. It feels like it and Stranger Things are about the kind of the resilience of the troop in like real time and space. Yeah, definitely. I feel definitely. like that there's something about that yeah. that you know, like you know, Lost Boys or Goonies or Stand by Me. That sense of kids banding together mm. in physical space and time to take yeah. on that's that's vanished a bit in a kind of digital, or it's been subsumed into gaming. Yeah. Whereas there's something about that you know, kids standing against the world. Yeah. That is. Yeah. Well, it features you know that that most that most pressing 
of adolescent needs, the need to belong. Yeah, exactly. And the way that, you know, you're orienting yourself yeah. you know, in relation to your peers and your, your peer group. Yeah. Um, it's like seeing belonging writ large as a kind of physical, you know, as a physical thing yeah. rather than just being part of online communities. Yeah, that's right. That's mm. right. And yeah. and the, the constellation of a friendship group as an absolute necessity, yeah. not to survive high school, as we'll see in our next series, but instead to fight some sort of cataclysmic, multiversal, uh, you know, threat. It's almost like, you know, to take that one step further, if uh, you know, young people these days, precisely what they feel, feel overwhelmed by is digital space and digital culture and online culture and, you know, the plethora of social media platforms. There's something comforting about seeing all that condensed to a kind of supernatural antagonist. Yeah. They can then stand off against in in physical space and time. Yeah, perhaps this multiverse is just that. It's, yeah. It's a just projection of all these mm. you know, digital fears that are crystallised in this yeah. one, you know, yeah, antagonistic object. It's funny because you know that old saying, like, you know, people are are more terrified of public speaking than of death. Yeah. I kind of feel like just the trend in horror films the last 10 years has suggested for this kind of younger generation is more like they're more terrified of being shamed or embarrassed on social media than <laughs> of death. Like, yeah. That's the terror. Yeah. And so it's almost like what shows like this and Stranger Things do is take that amorphous, you know, virtual space and put it at a put it at a distance and at, mm. at an arm's at an arm's length as a kind of apocalyptic spectacle that you have to mm. you can you mm. actually can take on physically. Yeah, true. And yeah. this multiversal quality as well means that like social media you can you can revise it. You can go mm. back and edit it and yeah, change exactly. the timeline. Exactly. Um, undo the past mm. to a certain extent. Mm. So a bit bit more background about this show. Um, it was created by Stephanie Folsom. It's based on the comic book by Brian K. Vaughan, illustrated by by Cliff Chang. Uh, it's streaming on Amazon Prime. So it's an Amazon Prime original. Mm. Now, it follows four young girls who, while out delivering papers during the morning hours after Halloween in 1988, uh, become unwittingly caught up in a, a war between, we take it, some sort of time-travelling factions. Mm. And they need to journey across these multiverse, multiverses in order to, to save the world. So our cast features a number of eclectic, Girls from different classes, different races. Again, um, like the troop. The troop. The troop. The troop. Yep. The troop. They're all they're all uh, melded together based on the fact that they are all social misfits and outsiders, like mm. in Stranger Things. Uh, so we have Cameron Jones, uh, who plays Tiff uh, Quilkin, who's an African American girl, the intelligent member of the of the of the crew. We have uh, Riley Lyonette, or Nellet, as Erin Tieng. Uh, who's a Chinese-American girl. It's her first day delivering papers. She is the sort of surrogate for the audience and she is an outsider, obviously, culturally, and also she's self-conscious because her mother doesn't speak English. Mm. Uh, Sophia uh, Rosinski plays Matt Coyle, who's the tomboy of the group mm. and uh, also from a lower socioeconomic background. Uh, Fina Straza as KJ Brandman, and she's might be come from an affluent background, but she's Jewish, so mm. for that reason the town views her with suspicion. They're a bit like the Losers Club in It. <laughs> That's right, they it's are. Like, yeah. They are. And Adina Porter, uh, who's, you know, a high ranking mm. uh, officer of the old watch. So we see uh, these these sci science fiction elements gradually, mm. you know, intrude on this plot as it goes along. I thought the setup of this was was quite effective. I mm. thought it was an evocative setting. I like the framing device with Ali Wong mm. um, as a, you know someone who uh, suspects 
a person is breaking into their house and there's a nice little ellipsis fade out to you know hell's day mm. um, it was funny like it, it was in some ways the pacing was unusual and it was quite choppy but in an interesting way like i felt like you know we've we've talked about different pilot strategies a bit this episode and how you know the sandman was a bit like a prologue candy was a bit like a self-contained film this is almost like a preview of coming attractions i thought mm. like i thought there were times when this pilot played like a yeah like a preview for the series mm. to come mm. and there were moments a trailer. a trailer exactly and there were moments that were kind of difficult to discern especially at the beginning and end of mm. the episode but in a way that i thought was still quite effective and made you want to watch on mm. um i, I think Maybe like a trailer. This shows too much. Famously in Jaws, Spielberg was quite prescriptive about not mm. showing the shark till very late in the piece mm. and not showing it in its full ex- extremity till mm. at all. This, I think, makes that fundamental error of, of showing too much. And is it worth... And I agree. And for that reason, I think this, what you might call the second act or the middle bit is the strongest. So just to kind of lay it out... Um, a bit more detail, like you start with these quite dissonant choppy scenes. Then you have a long sequence of the girls delivering newspapers in the small hours of the morning, mm. meeting up, you know, configuring themselves as a troop. I like that sequence. That was great. And then at the end you have this transition to a kind of time war that I think yeah. is effective as a kind of preview but does show a lot. I thought that was that was pretty... That was weaker. Pretty unfortunate. Um, it's funny because, I mean, you know, you know, one of my kind of, you know, enduring fascinations is the way in which tv shows try to capture this moment in time when analog life was starting to give way to digital life Mm. i know i talk about that a lot in the podcast but like that that's my experience of growing up in the 90s Mm. and that's that's my life world yeah i feel like i'm still poised at that no it's true it's true it's gradually as we've seen in our lifetime you know the Mm. life world and the the digital world Mm. you know so one supplanting the other absolutely yeah and i thought this show had a really yeah, you know, and I'm always interested in how and compelled by the, <clears throat> compelled by the way in which different shows represent that moment. And I thought this show had a really ingenious and atmospheric way of doing it. It it basically presents the paper route as networked space, mm. right? So you have all these this network of girls delivering newspapers. At this point in time, newspapers are one of the you know still one of the cutting edges of you know mass media. So this you know this is this is what network space looks like in the 80s, a paper route. And there's a whole lot of little touches that accentuate that. Like they're all, you know, communicating on walkie-talkies. As they fan out through the night, they move through different radio zones. Mm. And the virtual space also becomes associated, I guess, more generally with kind of liminal spaces. So the route takes them to the thresholds between suburbia and and the industrial part of the town. Mm. There's a great scene where they run into a rival newspaper gang like in a pedestrian tunnel at night with no one around. So Mm. it's like through this paper route, the series glimpses a kind of virtual network space that's embedded in still, but also emerging from physical space. And I thought that really worked with the setting, like, you know, you know, Halloween. I mean, I love the fact that it was set on, I think, called Hell Day, mm. the morning after Halloween. Yeah. So, you know, I know that, like, you know, mythologically, Halloween falls on that day of the year because, you know, in pagan times, they thought that was when the threshold between our world and the spirit world was most permeable. Mm. So by setting the series just at the very end of Halloween, those last dying hours of Halloween night... You know, and that's very much a part of it. Like, you know, they're, as they're cycling around, there's, you know, trees strung with toilet paper. There's 
decoration still up. It just there's that sense that the porosity and permeability of Halloween is just starting to close. Mm. So you have this networked virtual world that's also associated with this Halloween, the last the last glimpse of this Halloween permeability into another supernatural world. Mm. And I, I thought that was all remarkably evocative. Yeah. And just just yeah, really effective. And as you said, like it captured a moment in time and a transition point in time and in how we think of time so well to then have all that very overt time travel stuff at the end. Yeah, and that time travel stuff was was very low rent. Yeah, pretty uh, banal. The only thing... Cliché. The, the only thing I liked about it is I feel like Stranger Things sometimes has a kind of self-importance about it. Like it's a self-importance of like parents who grew up in the 80s <laughs> sentimentally mythologizing their own childhood for their kids sure and, and I, true. I thought i thought the time loop here like the 80s 10s time loop worked against that a little bit like i thought it, it took away that 80s insularity but then mm. again so did the fact of the paper route network anyway yeah so why did we need i think stranger things for all its faults was much more subtle in the way it suggested this this multiverse and mm. it left you wanting more. I think when I saw this, I wanted much less of that. Yeah. And that's, fun- that's a problem for a pilot. It's funny, like, just as a, as a side thing, this is a bit of a trigger trigger point for me too because I'm not sure if I've ever told you that I hate the smell of newspaper. Really? Have I told you? So, like, growing up, the smell of newspaper would make me gag, like vomit. I have a visceral reaction to it. <laughs> wow, and is it like a Pavlovian response? Were like you conditioned to, to hate it? I don't know what it was, but just something about it I associated with the abject, maybe because it's it's so disposable, you get rid of it's it so used quickly. to wipe up spills, maybe. Yeah, but I remember like we'd go to, a, I often stay the night at a family friend's place and at breakfast each morning, I'd, I'd dread breakfast because really? the table was just spread with newspapers. <laughs> so, And it's less of an issue these days because wow. people just don't read newspapers wow. as much. But the, the smell of... And maybe this show kind of captured maybe why that, you know, with newspapers, you've got this really, especially the time we were growing up, they were the cutting edge of information, this kind of abstract information, but that just made their disposability <laughs> and their materiality all the more abject. So yeah. I've never been able to read newspapers wow. or... So you were not cut out to be a paper boy. I wasn't. And the idea of being a paper boy or a paper girl actually just makes me feel quite ill. <laughs> so it's funny, like watching this, it's like... Maybe the, the paper stuff resonated with me just because this cusp between material and virtual life that yeah. we see in this paper route is emphasised for me by the fact that that's one material, newsprint, that I find absolutely revolting. So, you know, one yeah. of my good friends, Dave, is a journalist. Yeah. And I, I would never be able to be surrounded by newspaper yeah. like that all the time. I just yeah. couldn't do it. So it's it's a genuine, like... Wow, phobia. I mean, I mean, in, in like 25 years of friendship, have you ever seen me read a newspaper? <laughs> no. no. Have you ever seen me? I've seen you around newspapers, <laughs> like at you know at when we've been beach house and stuff. I've okay. seen you around newspapers. I, I keep a wide berth, really, like okay. a really wide wow. berth. So this paper girls was really an allegory of your your phobia, your your paper phobia. But also like you know how amazing it felt to me when all this stuff suddenly appeared, you know, online. Yeah. But all, the one exception I would make was movie times. Like I'd mm. hold my breath in the nineties, look at the newspaper for movie <laughs> times, and then just put it away for a yeah, minute. Yeah, the newspaper, the the film ads in the newspapers were great. I mean, to they're this day, little, they're a little box. There was no rhyme or reason to the structure. It was just no. whoever, whichever you know, distributor mm. or exhibitor just paid the most amount of money, had the most prominent ad. Yeah, yeah. So you'd often have to go searching for the little sure. fine print down the bottom to find where you know things were showing for you locally. There was, there was a there was an anarchic quality to the the way that 
you know, uh, TV uh, film session times or broadcast. And a classic example, like, you know, one of the most formative experiences of our early film going when in first uni we saw Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I only knew David Lynch had a new film out because I saw it advertised in the newspaper. Yeah. It's like, true. you know, coming next month, the new film by David Lynch, Mulholland, Mulholland Drive. True, so true, true. Just something true. about news, that threshold between newspapers and digital media that is particularly visceral yeah. for me because newspapers make me feel like being sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, okay. I, I like that middle bit. But I, yeah, I agree with you. The As you said, the yeah. time travel stuff was kind of low risk. <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, like I, that was when it became, it showed its kind of YA bones. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I, I'm curious enough about the paper route stuff, I must say, to give it at least one more episode. I don't think you'll come back for it's been like... <laughs> I, I've watched it. Oh, I've you? watched okay. a second episode. Oh, yeah, wow. I've watched a really second episode. I, um, you, just, you just landed a smackdown. I know. I, um, and <laughs> How's the second episode or is that outside of our jurisdiction? Outside of our jurisdiction, <laughs> but I will say the paper route stuff is good. Okay. The time travel stuff, not as good. But I, Do we get any more CGI Ronnie, Ronnie Reagan? You, you do get a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that stuff worked too. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Like, yeah, the, I do think the choppiness worked up to a certain point. I think it's more just the actual depictions of time travel were not that interesting yeah. and not that... Yeah. They were it, like the sort of stuff you saw in, Star, in Stargate. It looked like, in a it, looked, it, looked like it looked like dress up. It looked to me a little bit like, like Ship to Shore, yeah. that Australian TV show. Like yeah. it was very clearly dress ups. So With the, with the kind of, you know, sub-rent yeah. uh, Mad Max kind of feel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, future, like, futuristic. Yeah. Uh, ironically... Well, Hollywood backlot sort of sci-fi. And maybe the kind of... The message here is that it's, it's far more powerful, isn't it, to capture the future that lies dormant in yes, the present or yes. in the past than like overt, <laughs> overtly futuristic effects. Yeah. So look, I thought I thought this was interesting and I, I've got a soft spot for that paper route section in particular, which should yeah. be fair. But not the paper. Not the paper. <laughs> Takes up most Pro of the route, product. Con paper. Pro route, anti-paper. Um, hard in for the paper route, hard in for the network space, hard out for the actual paper. <laughs> yeah, I'm an out for this. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the experience of being a teenager in the 80s mm. with Paper Girls. Let's let's move on to that same narrative, that process, 10 years later. Yeah, uh, one the of MTV the, era. One of the greatest, exactly, one of the greatest of you know, 90s teen series, yeah. um, My So-Called Life. Yes. So this absolutely inimitable, cult classic, sublime in every way. Mm. Um, it... Screened from 1994 to 1995. There are only 19 episodes. Yeah. So we've got a real self-contained adolescent world in the same way as something like Freaks and Geeks. Created by Winnie Holtzman and produced by Edward Zwick. That's mm. one of the main producers. Mm. Um, the main character is Angela Chase, played by Claire Danes. She's a high school student in Pittsburgh. This is the, the role that made Claire Danes famous. Um, and... Several other characters, but one of the main ones is Jordan Catalano, her crush, played by Jared Leto. So this is also the show that made Jared Leto famous. Um, yeah. A couple of things happen in this early part in this pilot, but I think it's it's the kind of show you want to describe first and foremost in terms of mood. Mm. And we've we've talked about shows that start in medias race on mm. the podcast, but this is I think beyond all of them. This this starts in a state of pure imminence. Yeah. So the opening line is. So I started hanging out with Rayanne Graff because if I didn't, I thought I would die. <laughs> and then it takes us through an opening montage of the main character, Angela, having her hair dyed, moving to a new group of friends led by Rayanne Graff. Um, and so we, we meet her in a state of transition. Yeah. We stayed, meet her in this... Deep con- adolescence. A- absolutely. absolutely <laughs> this, this mercurial state of becoming mm. that bleeds over into the rest of 
well, the pilot and the series. And that sense of the flux of adolescence builds an extraordinary and romantic sense of futurity. Like mm. the score is, I mean, this is one of the most transcendent scores I think we've ever heard in a series. Just like one synth motif after another, synth wave after synth wave, just gesturing <laughs> towards some breathless singularity. I mean, you know, I think when you're an adolescent, you know, there's so many feelings I had as an adolescent, like of yearning and longing and hope and fear that I now realise were basically about the future. Mm. I mean, I think the futurity in the future is such a is such an intense and loaded object when you're an adolescent. It's the source of all your aspirations and the locus of all your fears. Mm. And this absolutely captures that. Mm. You know, more than almost any other show I've seen. I think yeah. um, a lot of the subplot around this. Uh, one of the main subplots in this pilot is about a, a yearbook um, that revolves around the year 2000. Yeah. So Angela... Oh, it's a very strange thing, the year 2000. Absolutely. What will the future, what will lie, exactly. you know, what will lie past in the 2000s? So the year, the year 2000 becomes a kind of synecdoche for this yeah. unimaginable, sublime, well, terrifying in, future. In a real, very real sense, growing up in the 90s, there was a real sense that, you know, 99 will give way to 2000 and the world would be completely different. Mm. There was that, you know, Y2K panic. Yeah. There was also a sense that we were, there was a, we were emerging into a real epoch. Mm. Um, like I said, we probably had a slightly long 90s and you probably, you know, date them to September 11 yep. um, historically. But nonetheless, there was a very, very clear shift sure. in epoch. There was a sense we were arriving at some unimaginable singularity. Mm. I mean, especially in Sydney because of the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. Yeah. There was a sense that, you know, with the year 2000, Sydney would finally come of age as a world city, yes. as a global city. And that would come with this unimaginable sense of connectedness yes. and networkedness yes. with the world at large. Yes, the 90s had such an incredible sense of forward momentum. And I think something we've often said, one of the great like millennial tracks is Waiting for Tonight, yes. that Jennifer Lopez song. Yes. So there's that song... In that song, tonight is the millennium. The millennium, like <laughs> yeah. just waiting for this. I mean, I remember in the in the film clip, like J Lo moves between these kind of, you know, CGI rainforests and like high end, you know, boutique hotels. Like yeah. there's this sense that the millennium is this absolutely exotic destination. Yeah. I feel like the the, the uh, millennium imaginary. Yeah, it wasn't as po apocalyptic as, for example, the Cold War. Not at all. Preceded it. No. Or obviously the climate change slash general general you know rise of authoritarianism. At least. Know? That and terrorism that, that punctuated at least the, not, uh, the noughties. Yeah, at least not by the 90s. Like, I feel yeah. like in 70s and 80s dystopian films, you sometimes see 2000 as a kind of apocalyptic horizon. But by yeah. the 90s, that sense of American Pax Americana, yeah. American centrism, there's a sense that it's, it's actually going to be all okay. Yeah, the insularity of the Clinton era, which is referenced yep. in this pilot as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that is, that's the horizon here. Yeah. And it anchors, you know, just an extraordinary... A part that is so awash with affect mm. and with emotion and with bodily experience. Mm. I mean, you know, Claire Danes is the. Well, let's come back to Claire mm. Danes' face. Even in a the bit. font of the yep. of the you know titles mm. here um, have that you know '90s graffiti style. There's yep. just an enormous amount of affect just embedded in even the yep. the little you know peripheral details of this part. And the you know the, the opening sequence, which is like I said, it just captures her in this moment, in this state of transformation, yeah. this state of metamorphosis. Um, the plot is kind of fairly simple. Like Angela Chase has left her you know old friend from the year before in high school and struck up with a new gang of cool kids mm, yeah that's alienated her somewhat from her parents it's also alienated her from her friend brian yeah. her former you know friend slash love interest who's a nerd 
She's become obsessed with a guy called Jordan Catalano. She meets him at a party. She goes out with this same group of friends later in the episode and one of the friends almost gets assaulted and she ends up mm. coming home, but she survives it. So I kind of feel like you see here to a real a real transition from the kind of high-risk, latchkey kid, adolescent lifestyles of the 80s mm. and a more contained suburban normalcy of the 90s. Yeah. But, I mean, there's so many things to say. I mean, one of the recurring motifs in the episode is um, Angela comparing herself and her experiences to Anne Frank. Yeah. And I was watching this with some friends recently, some younger friends who thought that comparing her experience to Anne Frank's experience was a bit on the nose. Because she said something early on like, what did Anne Frank have that was so bad? Like she got to hang out in an attic and write, write letters to a guy she liked. Yeah. I mean, well, with the guy she liked. With, with the guy she liked, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, confined with the guy she confined. liked. Confined. Yeah, I think it's meant to be slightly on the nose. Well, but. yeah, and my response was like, I think... That, that comparison between Angela and Anne Frank is something, to understand it, you've got to put yourself back in the year of genuine mass media. So I kind of feel like mass media is over now. Like we live in an era of niche media. Mm. Anything you want to find, you can find. Mm. But in the 90s, the peak of genuine mass media, the sense of conformity mm. and how crushing conformity was and how terrifying it was to conform I think is something that doesn't exist now. Mm. Like we have such a different sense of subcultures and such a different mm. sense of voices. You know, the angst you get saying grunge music, like I think it was Mark Fisher who said that like grunge music is like alt rock realising it has no option but to conform. Like that terror of conforming to mass culture is something I don't think exists anymore. No. And it was a time when I remember that you would look for any point of difference <laughs> from your everyday mainstream life however anachronistic it was. Yeah. And a lot of my adolescence was just like, you know, picking up the kind of authors and musicians I found around my parents' house and fashioning them into kind of vehicles for my own angst. So yeah. I remember I, I got... You created uh, an unusual little, you know, canon. counterculture of one. Well, I mean, I remember <laughs> I, I got really into Patrick White in high school. Yeah. And I, I didn't understand the first thing about Patrick White. Yeah. I didn't know anything about his context <laughs> or his place in literature. And I didn't really care. Like, it was about just picking anything yeah. that wasn't mainstream. And not, not just in a reactionary way, but in a sense that, you know, I think a very real sense that conformity and mass culture is so omnipresent. Mm any point of difference will do. And why not Glenn McGrath? Exactly. I, I, I was massively into visual arts at high school. Pretty pretty obvious transition from that to film. But um, a guy in my a year seven class had a Glenn McGrath fan club. So I set up a Renoir fan club <laughs> with a side dash of Delacroix. Ooh, uh, Renoir, cha-cha, Delacroix. Um, I was a bit of a prat. But, but, you know, it was kind of one of those things that if you'd asked me what I... Well, with art, I, I was actually more into it. But a lot of the the authors I attached to, I, I didn't know anything about their place yeah. in the literary canon. So yeah. I kind of feel like the Anne Frank thing is like that here. Yeah. It's like there's something so true to the 90s about reaching out for a historical figure who just feels like a point of difference in the present. Yeah. And actually, the fact of anachronistically appropriating them is the point. Yeah, yeah well, she, she identifies with her sense of confinement, yeah. but she's also envious with her, her um, you know, partial escape from the institutional strictures that yeah. that uh, that subordinate her and render her this, you know, um, I guess, identityless. And as she says, you know, she says she was hiding. She's talking about Anne Frank. She says she was hiding, but in this other way, she'd stopped hiding. She was free. Yeah. And there's something so beautiful. I mean, of course, at some level, that totally misrepresents. Yeah. But there's something so beautiful about 
seeing a 90s character reach back to the past and try and extract some meaning out of it. Like, you know, it reminds me of like that, you know, Frederick Jamison thing that like one of the main features of postmodernism and mass culture is that we no longer feel the past Mm. and the past just becomes part of mass culture. So the very act of reaching out and trying to pull something from the past Mm. into your world, Mm. however tastelessly, especially tastelessly, is so true to that period. Yeah, and it's also true true to the the style of this and the medium of this so and diary of Anne frank assassin this is a kind of memoir confessional this is a yeah confessional you know mm. there's a there's a voiceover narration mm. we get a lot of in, internal monologue here it's like, you know it is a, it is a nice intertext where uh, there's lots of resonances between the two and i think just to give a sense of how monocultural the 90s was i mean arguably the biggest point of conflict in this pilot is the fact that angela dyes her hair yeah. And she dyes it a brilliant red. It's not that unusual. Yeah. But this red dyed hair sends kind of ripple waves across <laughs> her family. Like it, it's almost like the, the red hair has this kind of cyberpunk quality yeah. where it, it ushers in this new reality. Yeah. And it totally determines the palette of the show too, yes. which is so warm and inclusive and yeah. cosy. But I think it's called Crimson Glow, the, yeah. the hair colour. Yeah, but, yeah. but different coloured hair. Mm. You know, like in in a time, especially in suburban America, that was so monocultural. Mm. You know, mm. it it shows the kind of world that she's grappling with. Yeah. So yeah, on the one hand, the stakes here are extraordinarily low, especially compared to mm. you know modern series. You know that 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 proclaims to shed you know shine a light on the darkest recesses of adolescent culture, mm. euphoria. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, they are very resonant and relatable. And mm. you know, while you know they they don't necessarily you know create you know build these up to hyperbolic extremes they they situate them within a real life context and that's a nice comparison because i think in a way euphoria is the equivalent of my so-called life for niche media Mm. so euphoria deals with the angst of a world where there are so many different ways that you can express yourself that you become over overwhelmed and overdetermined by your virtual Mm. life I think my so-called life is is the same sensibility, but in a world of total mass media conformity, yes, where true. you know the most you can do is reach out to Anne Frank, reach out to a hair color, yeah. to try and desperately carve out some place for yourself, yeah, yeah, in the world. I mean, I, I just remember this. I mean, I think you know one of our favorite anecdotes about high school is me me desperately wanting to belong, so trying to get into the Offspring album Americana, <laughs> and like I, I remember going to Marucci Door, like you know shopping center, you know trying to be all like tough and macho, and actually buying the CD of Americana. <laughs> I was so desperate, you know, to belong. And then not listening to it and, and realising with horror that, like, I didn't fit mass culture and then falling back on Enya instead. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like, Enya was where I was at. But, like, it just it captures that time. And, you know, I think also something else I love about it is, like, like so many great adolescent dramas, the parent story is really, oh, yeah. is really incredible. The parents are incredibly well drawn. How, how great pilot. are the parents? Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially the father, father figure who's defying gender norms mm. in this by assuming a kind of primary carer role in this household so yeah, exactly and, the, and his, his his wife is you know the breadwinner and she's out at the office till late hours so, and, so that the central you know effective relationship is the father and the daughter so exactly so you have the father who you know works for the mother's company the mother's father's company so you have this kind of you know and i don't mean this in a kind of snarky way a genuine kind of boomer in crisis moment right yeah. so you know boomers reaching middle age and Coming to ter- and the father in particular coming to terms with well we stood for sexual liberation now I am the primary kid it's kind of dealing with that yeah. also he works in printers yes so in this in this world that's imminently virtual he's outdated yeah but also the mother who was adopted and is still at one point was searching for her own parents mm. but 
kind of gave up or never found them. We don't find mm, out. But mm. the mother who is still in a state of, mm. of yearning for her own childhood yeah. and her own parents. Yeah. A lot of the conflict in this pilot as well stems from the mother feeling like she has to perform this kind of paternalistic mm. pro- prohibition. Absolutely. You know, this voice of prohibition. Mm. Um, and that the husband not, not being willing to do that mm. and the tension in their marriage that, that uh, arises as a result. And also that sense that because, you know, the older you get, the real, the more you realise how much you're determined by your own childhood and adolescence. Mm. And mm. just that lovely detail where the mother and father went to the same high school but didn't know each other at the time, yeah. only met up you know, a year or two later. So they have this shared high school life, yeah. but it didn't actually include each other. Yes. So both of them are kind of determined by but not entirely resolved by mm. their high school lives. And it's just, it's such a rich depiction of parents in a state of emergence. Yeah. In the same way that the children are in a state of yeah, emergence. Yeah, yeah, Navigating yeah. Navigating this transition. Mm. Um, interestingly, were mm. you aware of this show when it was first broadcast? Were you watching it when it was first broadcast? So or did you come to it later? This is one of my great what ifs. I had no idea it existed. Oh. You know, true to the experience of mass media, from what I remember, it didn't screen in Australia. Yeah, it must wasn't marketed. It must have screened prominently because you and I were both pretty into television mm. from about ninety six to ninety nine. Like yeah. we, we're on. Well, I guess this is ninety four to ninety five. It is a little so bit. So it's it's a little bit earlier. It's a little bit earlier. It's when we were still at primary yeah. school. Yeah. yeah, I was aware of it. I, I the the title rang a bell, mm. um, but I definitely didn't see one minute of this show. No. So when, you you came to this later on? Later, you? I came through Kyle. So my partner Kyle, it's oh. his it's his favourite show oh, of all time. Okay, sure. Um, partly because he loves Claire Danes. Yeah, which she's fantastic. Which brings back. I mean, if we're talking about a show that brims with affect and a show that's all about the nexus between analog and virtual worlds, I mean that is Claire Danes' face. Yeah, like Claire Danes' face can emote. Yes, like no other face that I know. Like mm. it's always her face is hyper connected. Yeah, it's always like all these different. It's almost like affects that are too big for a human body yeah. are always struggling to break through her face. She does big emotions so well. And especially the crying face. Yeah. I mean, the, the Claire yeah. Danes crying face. Yeah. And you, you glimpse it throughout the episode yeah. and then it comes together at the end, yeah. which may be the first time she ever cried in front of you know, for a mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such mm-hmm. a pivotal role. And the big emotions are so great here. Like one of my favourite scenes is when she's sitting at the, at the dinner table. It's iconic. And she's looking around. She's like... Do you ever think about chewing? Like how people just do it and don't think about it? And it's full of those massive other bit, which is like, what? Why do we need cheerleaders? Can't people just cheer for themselves? Like it's full of these yeah. these adolescent observations that would be platitudinous and banal if they didn't have such affect and conviction behind them. Yeah. So there's just that incredible intensity to her presence and just to her face, like yeah. the Claire Danes face. Yeah. Is yeah. everything. The, the other big story about this is obviously the premature cancellation. Yes. So I understand this was a very critically acclaimed mm. show mm. Um, and it was cancelled mm. after one season. Yeah. Uh, were you across the reasons for I think its cancellation? think ratings weren't huge, mm. so it was critically acclaimed. It's, it's almost like one of those shows that feels like its audience was the future. Yeah. Like its audience was people who grew up at the time. Yeah. Who mm. only looking back realised how true it was. Yeah, true. It Maybe. makes sense that this, this is a show perhaps mm. that's watched best out of time. Yeah. As a, as a capsule of life in the 90s. That's how I've reconciled myself to not watching it at the time. Mm. I mean, it is funny too. Like, I know I'm banging on about virtual analog, but, you know, it just captures so well. Like, there's all these scenes where we kind of pan down corridors that are kind of cluttered with bodies. Yeah. And it's very physical. It's very corporeal. 
but there's also this other network quality like the camera there's lots of long tracking shots the camera like networks faces there's these transitions and these segues like it's like we're in a space that's full of physical bodies but the camera is starting to network in a new way mm. you know what it reminds me of like it reminds me of when we were in second year uni um the kind of frisson that came from walking through campus yes and just feeling absolutely connected to everyone in a way that went beyond physical connection it was almost like proto-social media there was like a sense that we didn't have social media at university but you could feel the network in the air yeah true and this captures that true it was like a flaneur experience promenading yeah down there where you had loose connections with people that you brought together when everyone you know physically attended yeah and just kind of physical kind of yeah yeah exactly i mean and there's lots of compositions in this pilot too that like there's lots of compositions that are kind of networked where you have stuff happening in the background that offsets the foregrounds there's like a great scene where um angela's parents especially her mother are chastising her for going out Mm. but her sister's doing handstands in the background yeah or another scene where angela comes home from the party a police officer brings her home after this you know almost assaulted and the camera pulls back to her friend brian sitting in a tree reading a book with a torch watching yeah there's all these kind yeah, of he's co- a proto podcast that guy yeah he is <laughs> and at the end of it there's just just this beautiful sequence where she, um angela talks to brian mm. and they talk across opposite sides of the street and there's this shot of the street with this you know the lighting is like peak mid-90s lighting like misty ethereal you know evoking this unseen medium between them the chorus of everybody hurts kicks in yes and there's this sense that although they're in this empty space alone they're connected by some medium they Mm. can't see which is approximated by the song Mm. which then beautifully segues into the synth score again so it just it captures that breathless sense of being connected Mm. and having your body connected in ways that you can't quite descend even when she first meets jordan catalano they're at a party and she stumbles she's at a party and she stumbles into a room and he's just lying in front of a TV screen. Watching MTV on music. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Although not not exactly watching it, just mm. kind of basking in it. Mm. Like so he's mm. like he's just it's like someone who's just browsing the internet or mm. browsing his phone. He's just sitting there basking in it. Mm. And it he has no sense of time or place. He's like, Oh, it's a Thursday. It doesn't feel like yeah. a Thursday. Yeah, so well, I guess when MTV kind of prefigured the internet. Yeah, yeah. And the way you watch it. Exactly. You dip yeah. in and out. It's, you know, episodic, it's but even like MTV isn't enough to hold his attention. Yeah. Now. He's just basking in yeah. this glow, this media glow, to the point where he's forgotten what day it is. And that's where she meets him. So she's obviously drawn to him physically, mm. but he's also in this weird, ethereal, mm. virtual space yeah. as well. So it just, oh, I just love it. Like it just captures that moment in time so well. And that moment that I feel like, even though it's 25 years later, I'm still living at that analog virtual <laughs> cusp. Like that's my sensibility. So yeah. Yeah. have you seen it all? I haven't seen it all. Oh. This is an interesting thing. So Kyle and I have never watched the whole thing. Oh. I mean, he's seen the whole thing many times, but yeah. we actually started watching it again. Just it's, There's no reason why we haven't finished it. It's just other stuff has come up. Yeah, We've yeah. got... Yeah, so this is actually yeah. the incentive to finish it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, okay. Yeah, so I thought I thought it was it was really it was really poignant. Mm. Um, it was a beautiful time capsule of, mm. of life in the early to mid 1990s. Mm. Performances were wonderful. And I think yeah, there was an authenticity to it. Could we say just the, the kind of prototypical nineties coming of age series? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's just unmatched and earnest, Yeah, you know, earnest in its conviction and its angst and its yeah. affect. So yeah. I, if you were creating a, a capsule that you were going to bury, you know, to give someone from, you know, 2100 mm. mm. an insight into what it was like 
you know, life was like in the 1990s. I think this, this mm. TV show might be one of the, the first that you'd go to. And you know I love my synth refrains. <laughs> I love my synth, my synth music and it's perfect. Look, I'm a hard in, which, you do. which brings us to your archive choice for next yes, week. Yes, yes. So from mm. a show that seems like a subjectivity show mm. for you to a show that may well be a subjectivity show for me, but I've never seen it. Mm. Bizarrely, mm. given my affection for one of the leads. Mm. This show is Moonlighting. Amazing. Yeah. So this is a show, you know, hard-boiled, fantastic noir, yeah. um, you know, starring Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd. Weird, weirdly, I've seen a bit of it because, okay. you know, before we, years before we got in the podcast, I had a thing where I tried to go through and watch every series at my local DVD store. Right. So I watched a season of Moonlighting just because I got to the M's. Okay. Um, I don't remember it that well, except that it was really entertaining and okay. extraordinarily atmospheric. Fantastic. I think the only reason I haven't seen it is just it's so hard to... Mm. to uh, to watch at the mm. moment, given it's not on any streaming platform in Australia. So where it's although the pilot is on YouTube. Wow. Okay, we've got a bit mm. of bit of cheeky YouTube action. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I mean, these blind spots are extraordinary. I mean, just you know, Kyle and I with a, a mate at the moment, another mate are, are watching all of Tony Scott's films, and yeah. True Romance isn't available. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like, how is a Bruce Willis series not available? Yeah, I think this the the blind spot in particular seems to be eighties and nineties mm. um, mass culture, mm. which just Weirdly, to be, yeah. hasn't translated. Yeah, it has not yet translated. It was interesting because we watched The Last Boy Scout and that was that was a film that made me feel that Bruce Willis is actually strongest when he's not doing overt comedy but kind of sly comedy. Yeah. So I feel like Moonlighting is... I remember thinking that was a much more effective use of that comic voice. So yeah. that's fantastic. So Moonlighting next week? Absolutely. Cool. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>